0: Well, this morning, if you will please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I would be, I would fail you as a pastor if I did not at least bring up the realities of this last week in our world. This time last Sunday, maybe the news was beginning to break, uh, but we did not see the full ramification of that until late Sunday afternoon and into the evening. Um, unless you have just, unless you just avoid the news, you cannot avoid the heartache and, uh, the pain that is happening in our world at the moment, um, in the place called Afghanistan, but also, I mean, just around the world. But, um, we have Christians in Afghanistan right now who are, who have either already been killed this week or are fearing for their lives. Um, and so I do ask today of all days, and I want to open this time in God's word in prayer for that for that country and for the Christians there particularly, if we can. It's not that this is something special because it's in the news, but because it is a real pain that all the church shares. Amen. Um, some there's, There are a lot of different news stories and reports coming out of that part of the world, but one of them that is credible that I have looked into and I have seen is that, and this is important because this ties into our sermon text today, is that, the the church in Afghanistan is small, yet it is growing, and that there, it is evident, and it's still small. And when they say that it is one of the fastest-growing congregations in the world, it is, yet even though it's a small... Let's say that you have a 1,000 Christians. If it doubles to 2,000 Christians nationwide, that's still a pretty big growth, yet still small in number in proportion, yet it's still... It's there, and Christians there are in hiding... Um, but one of the, one of the things that I have learned this week and I've followed up on this, it is genuine, is that before all of this happened this week, the church is primarily made up of young people in Afghanistan. That seems to be the demographic. College age, into their twenties, young thirties. And in that part of the world, and actually in other parts of the world, it's not uncommon for people to carry identification cards as a normal practice. And on the identification card in that part of the world, you, you list your religious affiliation. That is normal. And Christians in Afghanistan have hesitated putting Christianity on their card for safety reasons. Yet in, in recent months, even leading up to this, here's one of the reports coming out. There are This was a debate within the church in Afghanistan whether you should publicly declare I am Christian. I mean, imagine, I mean, we have our debates here, but that's one of the debates they've had within the church in Afghanistan. And, and several did not, but several in the church have recently, even before this week, publicly decided we're going to put Christian on our identification card. And the reason for this is twofold. One, it's a public testimony. Number two is that becomes then a generational identity for all of the children who come after you. Because the, the, the religious identity on your card is generally from your parents in the previous generations that identify you as such. Now, that's a bold witness. Because some Christians have done that, they have been targeted specifically for obvious reasons. We can see why the Taliban would do that. They look at the records. Who is publicly a Christian? Let's go get them. So many of those who have been slaughtered this week are those Christians who stood boldly for the faith, not just for themselves, but for subsequent generations and they knew what they were doing. So let's pray this morning. Can we go into an attitude of prayer this morning for the church in Afghanistan particularly? I would also add the church in Iraq is also growing. Iran is growing. All around that part of the world, the church is growing. We had Pastor Vijay Misala here a few weeks ago. The church in India is growing, yet still now suffering new persecutions under the government. It's, it's a reality that we as Americans, we can, we can complain a lot about the persecutions that we have, but it pales in reality to what the rest of the world sees. Let's pray for them. Can we do that? Let's go to an attitude of prayer. Father God, this morning we pause as a church in one heart, in one mind. We grieve with our brothers and sisters who are in hiding in, at this moment. As Afghanistan has fallen drastically under the crush of evil, we have brothers and sisters who are still in hiding for their lives, yet they are devoted to your son, Jesus Christ, And they cry out to you, Father, for your protection and your mercy. And that's what we ask, Lord, that you would protect them at this moment. You would protect your remnant, your witness of the church and of your kingdom in a fallen, evil place. Lord, they need you. And we cry out to you this morning for your grace, your mercy, your protective hand. And so, God, this morning as we, as your people, hear from your word. I pray, God, that you would wrestle within our spirits. Wrestle us, Father. I I invite you to just wrestle with us as we hear the truth of what's happening in the world at the moment in context to what your son, Jesus Christ, says here to the Pharisees and the scribes. Dear God, we, we, we depend on you, not just in word, but in actions. And so, God, I pray for your your presence here as we, we read from your word, as we listen to the words of your son, Jesus, that, God, that you would speak into our hearts, stir us to devotion, to loyalty, to action, to reality as Christians, rather than faking it and being complacent. Call us, Father, to the truth. Call us to real fervent witness. I pray, God, that this would be a time for your glory and that we would see your hand moving, not just within this church, but mostly at this moment, Lord. We pray that we see your hand of protection and your hand of movement amongst your church in Afghanistan and around the world. It is a dark, dark time. Use it for your glory. Use it to call us to your, your side. Use it to show us that you are near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. This morning, if you will stand with me, we will read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. These are the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's pray. Precious Father God, we thank you for your word. And even as we have already just prayed for our, the church around the world, we now pray specifically for you to speak in your word to us. Jesus is addressing a specific problem with those who hear the truth and see your kingdom in its true form. And there are those who have an attitude toward it that Jesus condemns here. And I pray, God, that you would open our hearts and minds to see this and that you would speak to us as you see fit. This time is for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. God bless you. So we are continuing in the eleventh chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We have been in Matthew's Gospel. When did we start? January of last year? year and a half ish. It's taken us a year and a half to get to chapter eleven. And maybe in another year and a half we'll be done. I don't know. What was it I heard uh, when Pastor V.J. Misala was here a few weeks ago, uh, if you did not pick that up, he and his wife, his wife actually grew up in Bethlehem Baptist Church under John Piper. That was that was her lineage. Um and that was I, when when Ron and I had meals and and shared some time with them, she shared that at one point John Piper took how six or seven years to go through Romans. And when he was done, the church said let's do it again. So if we get through Matthew here, maybe sometime next year or the year after, and the church says, let's do that again, we'll talk about it, that's fine, we'll pray about it. If the Lord wants us to do it again, we will. But God's word is so rich, it doesn't matter to go over and over and over. It's a wonderful, it's the, God's word is, he's revealing who he is to us. He's revealing his kingdom to us. And if we could figure this out on our own, that would be awesome, but it's not possible. So it's a lifetime of going through his word again and again and again, and it's never boring. And as we continue here in the 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel, let's be reminded that Jesus is continuing his discourse here to the crowds that were around them as Jesus is telling them who John the Baptist is. Remember, all of chapter 11 up to this point is speaking, firstly, about who John the Baptist was. He was in prison at this time, and John's doubt caused him to ask the question, Jesus, are you the one, or are we waiting for another And and Jesus' compassion to John in that question shows that John was not in sin at all. Jesus was compassionate to him in that. And then the previous verses that we looked at last week, verses 7 through 15, Jesus was talking to the crowds and and encouraging them and reminding them to be serious about who they are searching for, what they were searching for. And he continues the conversation now in verse 16. But let before we continue here in verses 16 through 19, let, let's establish first the possible makeup of this crowd that Jesus is talking to, because this will help us glean these next verses. Who is Jesus speaking to in these crowds? It's obvious in verses 7 through 15 that Jesus spoke to John's followers. It's obvious that in that crowd, I think, would also be those who opposed John the Baptist. And that's who we're getting ready to talk to next. Now, the account of this scene in Matthew's gospel is also found in Luke chapter 7. And there are a couple of verses that help us Lay out exactly the, the scene. Luke's gospel tells us exactly who is there. So if you wish to turn over to Luke chapter 7, you may. And we're going to be reading verses 29. I'm sorry, yeah, verses 29 and 30. But Luke chapter 7 is the parallel account of this. And really, it's practically word for word from Matthew's account in Matthew 7. Except these two verses, verses 29 to 30. And I want to read these for us. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. And so we have here an account in Luke's gospel telling us a little bit more of the, of the backstory and the scene of what's, who, who Jesus is talking to. I mean, he's speaking to two... Really, he's speaking to two different groups. In verse 29 of Luke chapter 7, he makes it clear. Uh, Luke tells us that when all the people heard what Jesus was saying about John the Baptist, they declared God just. They heard the truth of what Jesus was saying but also they were perhaps the ones who were baptized by John as well, and they embraced that baptism. Now, that baptism of John was not something that John just decided in a business meeting sometime, this is what I'm going to do because it'll draw a lot of crowds. What did John do? He was baptizing because God Almighty called him to do so. And so if God initiates the baptismal rite and John practices the baptismal right, and you accept John's baptism, in essence, you're accepting God's baptism. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of preparation for the Messiah. It was not a baptism of forgiveness and salvation. Let's make sure we understand that. His baptism was really more of a preparation for the Messiah, ordained by God. God called him to do this. This is what you're doing. Now think about this. How easy is it to be cleansed of your mortal sin by going into the river with a crazy man, John the Baptist, and be dunked in the water? That's not difficult. Yet people reject that. And if they're going to reject that, they're going to reject the truth of the gospel when it comes, the truth of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we see here in verse 30 of Luke chapter 7. Here's the second group of people who are in the crowds. But the Pharisees and the lawyers or the scribes rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So there were two groups of people, those who were baptized by John, and when they heard Jesus confirming who John uh, was, they declared God just. Yet then there were those who rejected the purposes of God. And you could see that in verse 30. That really means they rejected the purpose of God through John's baptism. And so they rejected God himself. Therefore, they did not declare God just. There were two groups of people. This is who Jesus is speaking to. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 11. That really sets the tone. Okay, let's go back to Matthew chapter 11. After praising John the Baptist and then challenging the crowds with him who followed after John's ministry, right? John's ministry was a ministry of repentance. Jesus now explains further here in, in 16 through 19. He explains further that there are two types of people who hear the truth of the gospel. There are two types of people who hear it. Those who humbly come into the righteousness of God or those who pridefully misapply the wisdom of God because they are applying it in their own self-motives or their self-interpretation or the very center of sin is the self. And if you take God's gift of His presence and God's gift of His forgiveness and you apply it in the way you wish to apply it, you're in the second group of people who do not call God just. And this is the two different people that Jesus is speaking to. You're either humble in the righteousness of God as you hear the truth of the gospel, or you are prideful and you misapply the truth of God the way you want to. Now, what comes next in this passage is Jesus' parody. This is actually verses uh 17, verse 17 and 18 and 19 are really a parody. I want you to think of it this way you know what a parody is, right? These, these musicians who will take songs and make funny versions of them, they're a parody. This is what Jesus is, he's mocking the Pharisees. It's a parody of their teaching. Okay, so we're going to take a look at this. Let's see what he has to say. Look here at verse 16. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? Now, the good old King James, I know several in this In this room, they love the King James. Here's how the King James says it. But where unto shall I liken? Sounds very Shakespearean, doesn't it? It's okay. It's very poetic. To who shall I compare? To what shall I compare this generation? Now, Jesus, here's why this is a parody. Because in verse 16, what Jesus is saying, these would have been familiar words to people who were listening to rabbinic teaching. This was a familiar idiom, if you know that language. It was a familiar idiom used by rabbis as they would introduce a parable. It was a common phrase that was used for effect. And if you heard this comment, but to what shall I compare, it would have been, okay, there's a lesson coming. So Jesus begins this lesson by mocking, really, the ones that he's getting ready to show the truth about. Let's take a look here. So Jesus is speaking to this generation. And of course, what we saw in Luke's account clarifies for us that the crowd contained Pharisees and scribes. And so this generation, I mean, it clearly means the current generational religious leaders of Israel. That's who Jesus is now turning his focus to. Jesus opens his analogy with the same words that these leaders would have used. That grabs their attention. Look at verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. And we're going to look at verse 17 next. But do children play? Do they imitate? Do they, through their imagination, they imitate what adults do? Remind Be reminded of that, adults, especially if you still have children at home. If your children are mimicking what's happening in the home, know that they're mimicking what they see in the parents. Some of the parents are going, oh, no. It's a, We all know it, but we don't want to think about it, but it's true. Children mimic what adults do. And so this latter part of verse 16, Jesus, he now begins his analogy, his comparison, this generation of religious leaders, those who rejected the message of John and are likewise going to reject me, Jesus Christ. You are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. I mean, have you ever been shopping? And seeing children playing around in the shopping aisle. I mean, uh, imagine the scene here. You're in the, the public marketplace and the parents are getting whatever they need and the children are kind of off to the corner somewhere playing with each other in the marketplace. And what do the children play? A very common game that they play. There were two common games that are mentioned here. And, and this is what verse 17 shows us. Here's what the children are calling to one another. You could almost, if you're reading verse 17, it's almost like a song. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. These are songs of children. What are they singing? What are they doing? There's two games here. The first game seems to be a childhood game that pretends to be at a wedding. Do we have any children here who play wedding? Now, as a, as a young boy, I don't ever remember playing wedding. Yet if you've got girls in your home, I assume y'all played wedding. Yes, girls do that. And boys, if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, might be grabbed as the groom because it's the only boy they can find. Notice I said they have to have a boy as a groom. That's important. <laughs> Children will play these games. Dance. Now, now, we have to think about the wedding here. Common in Jesus's day that the wedding was a celebration, a multiple day feast. It wasn't just a let's go to the church and get married in 30 minutes. They're done. It was let's go and have a feast. That was the wedding. And you can imagine playing that. And they would, there would be a wedding procession coming through the streets and they would invite bystanders, come and join us and sing and dance with us. That's the song here. So the children were imitating this. Now, the second game, the second game seems to be a game, and it was a very common... When we look at history here of the Jewish time, we see this. There was a common game of also pretending to have a funeral. Sounds very morbid, but I I think I can remember as a a little child, we would play dead, right? And someone would be the dead person, and we would all kind of stand around and talk over them and I, re- I somehow remember that as a child. Maybe that was a morbid childhood, but I do remember that. Of course, now as boys, we would try to kill each other. I remember, uh, being in rock fights. Boys, you ever, remember? okay, boys would do that. We will, maybe we'll have a funeral after the rock fight. I don't know. But there were two games here. There was the children playing a wedding, and there were the children, and, and they were playing a funeral. These were common games. Now, likewise, just as the wedding procession would go through the town and invite people to join them in the celebration, it was also very common in a real funeral that you would be going through the town streets in a procession and you would invite people to mourn with you. In other words, it was not a private affair. It was a very public thing. And these children saw this and they would imitate this. This is what Jesus is talking about. So what these children are imitating, they were imitating the customs of the day. When that wedding party or that parade would come through, if you were invited, here's the song. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. Or if the, if the funeral procession was coming through, it was also very custom, uh, customary to join in the mourning with the family as they were coming through. But imagine, look at the words that Jesus is singing here. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. Someone invites you to join into the celebration and you don't join them? We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. We invited you to come and be a part of our mourning and you did not come. Now, who would do this? Anybody ever played games as children and there was always that one child when they did not get their way would take their ball and go home? Or take their dolls and go home. That's the scene that Jesus is setting here. The wedding feast is coming through. They're inviting you to dance and you are so, you're so fickle and bored as a spoiled child that you want to go home rather than be part of the celebration. You are so Pompous and arrogant that when someone asks you to participate in the funeral and mourn, you are so above that you'll go home and take your ball with you. How rude. You see what? This is what Jesus? children will actually mimic what adults do. And there's always that child when they're invited to play the game refuses to. And why? Because they're selfish. They're self-centered. No one wants to play with me, but yes, they've just invited you to play, yet you refuse to play. We we get the scene here. Yet, let's be real, adults. We act that way as well. It's not the way I would do it, so I'm going to take my ball and go home. Children imitate adults. So what Jesus is comparing here is the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes with the attitude of a group of fickle and bored children who refuse to play. That's what he's calling them. It's as if a group of spoiled children cannot decide which games they want to play. They neither wish to sing and rejoice, and they do not wish to mourn with the grieving because they are so above it all or no one's doing it my way. Sound familiar? So let's move here into verses 18 and 19, and Jesus takes this image even further. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." So what is Jesus doing here? He's addressing the basic rejection of him and of the kingdom of heaven. The message of redemption through God's outpouring of grace. The establishment of the true kingdom and this rejection here, Jesus is expressing the rejection here of these fickle grown children. as expressing in two negatives, criticism and indifference. Criticism and indifference. That's what's being pointed out here. Critical. You know that critical spirit? They're never happy. Always, if, if there's nothing to complain about, they won't, they won't speak until they find something to complain about. If there's nothing to complain about, they'll complain. Yet they complain. You get the point? This is how John the Baptist and Jesus were received by the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious elites. Now, in verse 18, John the Baptist and actually Jesus are both represented in 18 and 19. They represent two aspects of the kingdom and ministry. And this is important. John's ministry represented the funeral. Why? What did did John the Baptist preach? Repentance. Death to your selfish sin. You may actually have to sacrifice your comforts. Death. So John's ministry is kind of like a funeral. John's life was simple by design. John himself rejected the public, uh, or the public, uh, uh, g- uh, the public uh, parties and, and the culture. He was he was isolated in the wilderness. He was not part of the the social scene. So there you can see that's a little bit of a death of of prominence and respect. He avoided lavish living. And his message was a serious one, a severe one that demanded repentance. It was it was like a funeral. Those who rejected the message from John the Baptist, they did so out of frustration. They were frustrated with this John. He should not be this popular, yet he is or they're frustrated that John grated against their immoral and spiritual sensibilities. He would rub them raw with the truth of the message that God gave him to proclaim. And the critics would rail back at him with criticism. They would say here, like verse 18 reminds us, Jesus is saying, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. In other words... He did not participate in the social circles. There must be something weird going on. He's got to have a demon. Lives out in the wilderness and he eats locusts and wild honey. He's not right. You ever talk to people like that? But John was God's voice. He was the last of the greatest of all prophets that Jesus reminds us of. Yet because he did not eat and drink and play the game, Oh, he must have a demon. That's the criticism. Why else would John be so harsh, they would say? Why is he so mean all the time to us? Why else would these critics feel so bad unless the truth that John was saying was actually driven home? Maybe that's what they were responding against. The truth of John's message was too real to them and they were too fickle to actually accept it like a bored child who does not want to be told how to play a game. I don't like it. And so you find a reason to lash out against it. How many of us have been guilty of that? Now, let's look here in verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. So look at the contrast. John neither came eating or drinking, yet in verse 19, the Son of Man did come eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. What's the difference? I mean, now we're looking at indifference toward Jesus. There was criticism on both parties, but criticism toward John because he would not eat and drink and celebrate. Yet then when Jesus eats and drinks and celebrates, they condemn him for being a drunkard. Which is it? You going to be happy that they celebrate with you and, and dine with you or not? Which one? See, Jesus is pointing out you're acting like children here. Jesus often attended social functions, remember? He was not like John. John was the weird one out in the wilderness. Jesus was the one who was, he was there at the social functions. I mean, the religious people would invite this famous rabbi who's coming through town, come and read scripture in the synagogues and oh, come to my house, we're having a feast. They would invite him there and then criticize him and cut him down when he was there. So which is it? See the point? In other words, because Jesus lived, but think about this, when Jesus was living these, these celebratory times when he was eating and drinking, who was he with primarily? He was with the undesirables. He was with the ones that they rejected. And so the religious people, they were indifferent to Jesus. Oh, he's just one of those people who hang out with those folks. They were indifferent to him. So where John lives in the funeral mode, Jesus, really, he lives in the wedding mode. He was preparing his followers for the wedding feast. (laughs) He was preparing his followers for coming to heaven with him, and they would celebrate together in the presence of the Father. Jesus was preparing them for this. Yet the religious leaders weren't content. They found something to complain about or something to just be flippant about So what does this mean? William Barclay says this, a great theologian. Here's what he says. He says, the plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will easily enough find an excuse for not listening. They do not even try to be consistent in their criticism. That's usually a red flag. They will criticize the same person and the same institution from quite opposite grounds and reasons. If people are determined to make no response, they will remain stubbornly and sullenly unresponsive no matter what invitation is made to them. Does that sound like anyone in this room? Is the Lord dealing with you in something? I know that there's some folks here and some folks who are listening that we record this. They may hear these words next. I know that they are not Christians. Vocally, they say so. Why? If the Lord has presented the gospel to you, if he has presented the opportunity of truth to you, if he has presented his sovereign grace to you, What is? Why why are you indifferent? Why are you indifferent? Are you finding things to make excuses about? In your heart, in your words, in your actions. If God has given you opportunity to hear the truth of salvation, there's a reason for that. It's because God's sovereign grace has made its way to you by His hands. And we're indifferent. Critics of the gospel are like fickle children who will fold up their arms and they'll pout because they're not getting their way. Yet those in the church will act the same way and then you have to ask yourself, are they in alignment with what Jesus is saying? Are they actually not Christians at all because they're like this? You know, and they're happy and their face is just like this. Happy Jesus people, right? No, no. If, if you are bored and you are indifferent and you are critical, the question here, I think, from the words of Jesus is, are you truly in His graces? Are you truly forgiven of your sins? Are you truly made new in Christ if that is the way you respond to the truth of the gospel when it is presented? So critics of the gospel are like fickle children who fold up their arms and pout. Critics in the church are the same. Nothing satisfies them. And Jesus is revealing to these critics, they are religious folks, is that they are no better than irritated children who cannot make up their minds. Anyone here in that position? You're so irritated with the truth of what God is presenting to you. You cannot make up your mind. You see the truth and you want to reject the truth. So you're irritated and you're indifferent and you're indecisive. And Jesus is saying, if that is you, you are no better than a spoiled child who plays in the marketplace and does not get their way in the game. I mean, that's powerful stuff not just for the one who is unsaved, not just for the one outside of the graces of God, but also for those who, who claim the name of Christ, because we can easily fall into this as well if we are genuinely saved. There are times in our lives where we can fall into this attitude of indifference and criticism. Remember Jesus' admonition to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. Remember in verse 15 of chapter 11, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that was the... Call to remind them to, to be reminded of what he just said about John the Baptist. But the same thing happens here. He who has ears to hear in verse 15, we must listen to what Jesus expects of his people. Jesus expects the fickle children in this crowd to listen and to hear the truth. Because John the Baptist was a herald of the ministry. <laughs> he was a herald saying Jesus is coming. And those who heard that proclamation could have reacted, ah, oh, he's just a weirdo. Jesus is actually giving a warning here. Do not be like spoiled children in the marketplace. Respond to the truth. I mean, there's a reason Jesus uses a childhood game here as the analogy. Because children can act like children. And so can adults. You remember that the critics here, they demonized John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist was by, called by Jesus as Elijah. They would, have, they would have lauded Elijah. Yet here was John the Baptist and they criticized him. The critics were, were passive aggressive toward Jesus. Even though he was like David. See, two different ministries here. Look here in verse 19. Now Jesus concludes, and then remember, this is a parody, really. <laughs> Jesus concludes his parody of the religious leaders by pointing out something about wisdom. Look here at the end of verse 19. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now some translations may say, yet wisdom is justified by her children. Which I think is an appropriate translation as well, because the whole context of this Interaction is about children. What's he say here? Some scholars argue that this verse identifies Jesus with the Jewish image of a personified divine wisdom, which could be reasonable. But but I think more in keeping with the context of this uh, this teaching, this analogy that Jesus is showing, I think when we see it here at the end of verse 19, we could glean that truth reveals itself. And truth reveals itself in deeds or outcomes. So if someone claims to be a Christian, I mean, Paul helps us see this, your actions will show the truth. Jesus, as he is telling the crowds here in chapter 11, who John the Baptist is, Jesus Actually, actually responding to John's doubt. Remember, John has a doubt about who Jesus is. Jesus' response is, well, look at what is being done. My actions, my ministry should tell you what the truth is. So at the end of verse 19, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds or by her children. The, the, the offspring of the actions will tell you if it is true. Actually, it will tell you what is true. That's the point. Jesus here, he's exposing the childishness of the religious leaders by revealing the truth about their actions or the lack thereof. You are a religious leader. You're a Pharisee among Pharisees. You're a scholar who knows the word. So Christians who love to study God's word, can keep doing so? But this, but knowing God's word does not mean that you are forgiven. And Jesus is pointing this out. You scholars know the word, you know the, the scripture so well that your pride is in your knowledge and your wisdom. Yet the outcome of this reveals the truth of who you are. You're just a child a spoiled child at that. The deeds or the children of of wisdom reveal its true nature. And if religious elite, if the religious elite here, they're, they're fickle children, if they are, then their apathy and their criticism actually shows who they truly are. That's Jesus's point. Your criticism and your indifference to the truth that God himself is expressing to you through John the Baptist and now through me that shows who you are. It is God who is speaking. It is God who is acting. It is God who is here. And you are acting like spoiled children who don't want to join in the game. Why? So how does this passage apply to us? How how many who hear these words, are folding their arms at the call of Jesus to come to Him and be forgiven, to come to Him and repent of your sin and, and follow Him. There's some in this room, I know, the, the Lord's dealing with, the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart, even as we're speaking. Perhaps He's been dealing with you even before today, and, and you are acting like a fickle child folding his arms or her arms and saying, I'm not going to play. Christians who have faithfully served the Lord for a long time, how many of you are being dealt with by the Holy Spirit and you're folding your arms and you're saying, no, and you stomp your foot? I'm just going to be honest. I'm blessed to be here with Sovereign You guys are so great. No one here actually acts childish, or at least they don't let me see it. But we honestly, I I think we have a pretty harmonious fellowship here. And if there is something that needs to be discussed, I mean, we, we talk. We do it, for the most part, the right way. We're not perfect. But let's be honest as well. Is the Lord speaking to any of us this morning from what Jesus is saying? And are we acting like spoiled children and stomping our foot and saying no? Now, primarily, this passage is concerned with the apathy towards salvation in Christ. That's, that's the main point here. Do not miss this. It is dealing with apathy toward Christ himself. It's dealing with the message of salvation that God himself is bringing through John the Baptist first that leads to Jesus Christ, and Jesus is saying, How are you behaving here? And just as Jesus pointed out the truth of how the crowds reacted to John's ministry, so too these words of Jesus are calling us to be true to the call to join him in the wedding feast. And to be true and join him in mourning with him in his death and the death to the nature of sinful fallen man. We should mourn that people are still dead in their sins. And Jesus is saying, do you even care? You won't even mourn with me that people are walking dead people in their sins. You won't even join me as we celebrate at the wedding feast of salvation. You won't even, you're, you're so bored. Any Christians here bored? I mean, that. I think that is that is the sin of the westernized American church. I think we're bored. I hope Jesus is not applying this to you. So my question is, will you be a fickle child and refuse the joyful kingdom of heaven? Or or, or will you join in the wedding feast and put to rest and bury those sins of your rebellion? That's the call. The children of our wisdom, the children of our choices will expose the truth. Let's be careful here. But also be alert. If you're in discernment right now, if, if, if the Lord is really wrestling in you, and I like to use that term because, I mean, the, the pre incarnate Christ, he, he wrestled with Jacob, didn't he? I mean, I'm in a wrestling match. It seems like all, every single day I feel like I'm in a wrestling match with the Lord over something. He always wins eventually. Is there something in you that, that the Lord is wrestling with you over? If it's over salvation, primarily salvation, if the Lord is wrestling with you over salvation, why are you wrestling? Submit, follow, surrender. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me and saving me. Why fight back from that? Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we love you, and, and your words your words here through your Son, Jesus Christ, are so true. Lord, he is speaking directly to the religious elite. He's speaking directly to the Pharisees and the scribes who are so pompous and, 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 and convinced in their own intellect that they are righteous. Jesus is actually calling that attitude, spoiled children. Lord, there is something real in the ministry of John and there's something real in the ministry of your son, Jesus Christ, in this text that that really resonates with who you are. God, you are the loving God who is righteous and holy and sovereign and you call the truth, truth. And the truth is you have established your kingdom through your son, Jesus Christ. And your son, Jesus Christ, paid the price for us on the cross Our sin has been atoned for if we are in your son, Jesus Christ. Our sin is not atoned for if we are not. This does not mean that it's our choice. It's not our free will. It is you chasing us through your Holy Spirit, loving us to bring us home. And dear God, if your sovereign actions of Sending your spirit into the hearts of anyone in this room is convincing or convicting them of their sin and their rebellion. I pray, dear God, they would not act like children in response. They would look to the truth of this and say, thank you, Lord, for loving me. I am sorry. Forgive me. And God, I pray this morning that your work would be what it is, something glorious and beautiful. Forgive us, Father, for being bored. Forgive us, Father, for being complacent. Allow us to join the celebration of your Son, Jesus Christ, in heaven. Allow us to mourn the sin that's in us and in others. Convince us, Father, convict us of our error. Show us passion and joy in Jesus Christ, Let this time be for your glory, Father, as we end this time of worship. And deal, Father, please, with anyone that you need to deal with as they need to be dealt with through your grace and your love and your mercy. This time is for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.